Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. <laughs> Hi there, Steve. <laughs> Our guest for this episode is Mike Peters of The Alarm, who joined us in late 2020 to talk about his music and share a demo from the band he founded with Billy Duffy of the cult, Colour Sound. Ben, the story of this band is told wonderfully by Mike in this episode, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it really is. Yeah, kind of he he brings um, brings it very much to life how these two well-known musicians came together and kind of started out from a sort of zero dateline point, kind of deciding to build something brand new up from the ground together. You know, two people with uh, with prominent reputations in the rock scene at the time, um, and yeah some of the way that he talks about how it kind of came together in a very gentle fashion and then sort of um uh yeah how they how they moved on from that point was so evocative wasn't it yeah 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 that those are uh, that early stage stuff where they're just like okay let's just do this without any of the resources that are available to us other than our shared kind of desire to make this music together and then but once the you know once the cat was out of the bag about what was happening when they started to play live the, like the momentum that started to to pick up i love i love how that that sort of contrast but at a time when i mean there's a real honesty to the kind of origin story isn't there about um how uh that how they found themselves in a different position uh you talk about the reputation but in a different position with the onset of the kind of grunge scene um and how music changed and they found themselves kind of sidelined in some ways and and needing to sort of rethink who they were i think the phrase used that mike uses is that the they that they'd lost uh touch with their youth uh, is that that's the phrase he uses isn't it and 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 i found that really quite it's like refreshingly honest and um and it kicks the story on from there doesn't it yeah and i think it i think it totally fits when you when you look at where the way that mike has held himself throughout his kind of career as a musician um how holding steady through that kind of um less prominent times when it was more difficult to be you know um to to be making his way in music um how he's conducted himself um and then some of the kind of brilliant scene setting that comes prior to the prior to um color sound you know about the sort of um the very vibrant music scene that those two musicians that him and billy duffy came from you know out of you know bands like theater of hate and southern death cult and that whole kind of territory but yeah he, he like you said he he spoke it about it very very honestly that they you know time had moved on sort of under their feet and they were they were not as prominent and that you know that they found were still finding the joy in music and and willing to kind of go ahead and capture that and then you know push on from there actually because you know as well we'll hear what the what the formation of the color sound did in terms of the two bands in terms of the alarm and the cult that those two musicians came from and how that kicked both back bands back into in the arena into the arena as well didn't it yeah i also i think maybe because it was fresh in my mind but saw a real parallel um between the story of Mike and uh, Mike Peters and Billy Duffy going for walks in the mountains and talking about their experiences up to that point and then making some music together in a really stripped back kind of back to basics way. And I found that 
sort of sitting alongside the story from the the last episode of the of the two toms and they're just like being thrown together and let's make this music and then this thing happens there's a there's a there's a parallel there that i really enjoyed oh yeah very much so and i think i mean for me i think we we've talked about um we talked about this before but for me you know the alarm were one of those sort of bands that i, I very much grew up with um, and 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 again, mentioning this came sort of same thing. But I remember hearing Unsafe Building on the on on Peel's program, and then coming to you know songs like The Stand and and Sixty Eight Guns, and kind of as a as a, a sort of young teenager getting into politics, and you know think sort of feeling the vibe of those of those kind of tunes and that. Um, and it kind of like you said that um, them coming back with the color sound and very felt very much um like a, a retelling of of a band starting out from the very very first point didn't it mm, you know yeah. the the energy and the the passion that the that they had and poured into that project yeah and you're right about the um those uh the impact of the alarm i'm going to see the the alarm play at norwich uea three or four times um they were always so amazing live and still are, you know, I've been to the the gathering a couple of times in Llandidno, uh, that they hold every year. And when fans from all over the world descend on North Wales, I don't know how many years they've been doing it now, 15, 20 years they've been doing the gathering and fans from all over the world converge on Llandidno for the weekend to celebrate that band's music. And it's, uh, it's an, it's a hugely impressive and uh, thing, and it it speaks to um, the love that there is for Mike and his music, um, and so it's really great that he's that Mike has shared this demo with us. And uh, in fact, there was a there was a, a half a plan to uh, to do a part two with with uh, Billy Duffy and play the the full version of this song, the 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 finished version of the of um, the demo uh, at the end of that episode with Billy, but we couldn't make that happen. Um, so we're going to play. Uh, both versions at the end of this episode uh, so you get to hear the demo of under the sun and then you get to hear the full um completed version of it which is great it is i mean it's a pity we couldn't bring the billy duffy episode to, to the same to the table as well because i think they would have sat really really nicely those two stories side by side but you get um with with mike you get the full 100 percent, don't you you get someone who speaks fluidly um and with great passion and great confidence um, about his about everything he's done in music, um, and and does some wonderfully vivid storytelling that it just you know it brings it brings it to life in a brilliant brilliant way, you know you know thanks very much to Mike for you know for giving us this time and and come to share these stories with us. Yeah, well said, absolutely. I echo that. Thank you, Mike. Uh, it was it was brilliant to have the opportunity to speak with you about this stuff. Um, if you're enjoying songs from a padded envelope, please do head over to Apple and give us a five-star review and a two thumbs up and a cheeky wink that would be great um so let's go over to our episode uh with mike peters episode 33 of songs from a padded envelope yeah hi i'm mike peters uh from color sound uh and also masquerading as the singer of the alarm uh, and the song you're gonna hear is uh, the demo uh, of a song called Under the Sun by Color Sound, which is the song that kickstarted the life of the band that was formed by myself and Billy Duffy of the Cult. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, Mike. Can you just say a little bit about how Color Sound came together initially? 
Yeah, Colour Sound happened because uh, out of a friendship, really. Um, I was a massive admirer of Billy Duffy from the cult, being in a, on the opposite side of the of the tour bus, if you like, from seeing him from afar as a member of the Alarm, and you know, seeing She Sells Sanctuary on on tour, seeing the Death Cult, and I actually saw Southern Death Cult a lot of times as well, the precursor oh, of did the you? whole yeah. thing. Yeah, well, they were um, amazing. Yeah, they were great. Well, we were all on the same agency, Wasted Talent, out of London, and uh, the, our agent Ian Wilson was the agent for Southern Death Cult. And so we saw a lot of those early shows because he tipped me off before most people learned about that band. You know, they they toured with Theatre of Hate and and uh, created a buzz for themselves. And then next minute they were in London. Uh, to, I remember seeing them at Club Foot, and they were it was amazing. You know, seeing Ian Asprey on stage, he was a really exciting character and great personality and brilliant frontman. And the whole band were were fantastic. Aki on the drums, Buzz on guitar. It was brilliant. It was a full on assault of all the senses. And, and I was so I was always interested in when they became Death Cult and, and Billy Duffy joined, who'd been in Theatre of Hate as well. Uh, I saw them, him play with Theatre of Hate and I just thought, what a guitarist. He was playing the same the white Gretsch like um, that had probably been introduced to him. Well, but what had been introduced to him by Kirk Brandon of Theatre of Hate. And it was just a fantastic sound. And then when they became the cult, and it really hit home when She Sell Sanctuary came out. We were recording the Alarm Strength album at the time, and I went to um, Our Price on Bayswater Road and bought a copy of She Sell Sanctuary and played the 12-inch back in the studio while we were making our album. I thought, wow, the game has just been raised here. The bar has been raised. And uh, and so, uh, and but it, when the, the, um, the 90s came around, both the Alarm and the Cult, we both found ourselves at... Um, a period of time where the pressure of being in those bands for a long time started to take its toll. And and so in the mid-90s, the Alarm and the Cult were both inactive. And I bumped into Billy at uh, the Phoenix Festival in 1996, and we were both mm. playing five-a-side football in, in a sort of celebrity music media type of tournament. And we got talking on the sidelines. I was like, there's Billy Duffy, you know, <laughs> and we got uh -huh. talking. And, and, and I, I was, I said, look, I'm making a solo record. I'd love you to come and play. And he said, well, I'm a bit busy at the moment. I'd you know, really like to. But uh, he had a band going with another of our friends, Miles Hunt from the Wonder Stuff called Vent. So I, I just thought that was it. But uh, after the conversation about music, we both realized we both loved hiking in, in the mountains and we loved North Wales and the Lake District and Scotland and and we, we decided to stay in contact more often. And uh, uh, and then I was playing in a show in in um, in Santa Monica in, in Los Angeles. And um, Billy came to the gig. It was an acoustic show. I was on my own. And he stayed around. And he came in the dressing room. He goes, you know, you were talking about making some music. Well, I'm coming back to Britain in a couple of weeks. And uh, why don't we go hiking in the mountains and see if there's any music in, in our relationship and our friendship. And... And so that's what happened. He turned up on my doorstep in Dizeth in Wales. Um, we sat down. We put Match of the Day on. <laughs> and halfway through the programme, we'd written our first song. <laughs> and, and the first songs that we wrote ended up on my solo album, Rise, that uh, Billy came and guested on. And then, then and you could tell there was a, a spark there between us. So we just moved forward into writing songs from our own creative experience as as a, a duo if you like and 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 really uh i i as a lyricist and a music writer i, I thought it was better to leave the music more to billy and i just focus on being the 
the the funnel to let some of his music come forward and so that all, most of the songs start with his riffs and or his chord progressions and then i'd find melodies in there and introduce certain elements to him that he would maybe was less aware of being from a straight hard rock band that stayed in major keys most of its life i was starting to introduce minor to the equation and and that's really how it all began and and again there was an obvious chemistry straight away and we decided to put a band together to realize the music and we called it color sound was there was there something in that i mean that rich history that you've just given us that kind of bedded the band down that made it work yeah we were both um i think at, the, at that time in our, on our um life we were both coming to terms with stepping out from the spotlight for the first time you know being overtaken by a younger generation being made to feel less important than we felt we were or um, we had to deal with being outcast in a way because in the early 90s grunge happened and nirvana and the pearl jams and all those young bands came along and all of a sudden we lost our youth or we lost touch with our youth and we had to go away and rethink and it it sort of forced all all our bands from that era into a period of turmoil i think where where we were all torn apart and affected by the ramifications of new music for a new decade which happens every 10 years you think your success has brought you some sort of immunity from that but it never really does um, and we were all impacted adversely and positively by the effect of grunge it, it, the, the positives where it threw me into a world with billy duffy that had that not happened and he'd stayed with the cult and i'd stayed with the alarm we might not have had the, the vehicle of color sound to, to write songs for so there was positives but on our mountain journeys when we when we were climbing you know in moyle vamai or going over to moyle shabbard or up snowden we found a lot of empathy in in our conversations uh, i learned a lot about bands from the non-singer side through talking to billy i could start to say well maybe i've been a bit hard on our guitarist on some of the sessions and and i could give billy a perspective of a singer without the politics of being tied up in the music business or the the copyrights or the the credits and who gets the the lead photo on the album you know away from that we were all able to we were both able to understand our opposite roles in a much better way that i think and ultimately uh color sound actually brought the alarm and the cult back together again towards the end of the decade so there was a lot of positives came out of it but we had to sort of break everything down before we could build it all up again that's really fascinating that's really great to hear and I, i'm just i'm just wondering as well about the process of you were talking about um uh sitting down and watching match of the day and writing together um in that sort of casual context but did um the process of making demos for the color sound project differ from your usual process well again i think for for both of us billy and i we were we were thrown out of the comfort and relative safety of our internationally known bands and forced to think again and a lot at that point a lot of bands give up you know there's no secretary to book the taxi to rehearsals you know you there's no one there from the record company writing the check for the recording studio you have to do all that yourself just like when the band started so it, it the process put us in touch with our primal selves and we just thought well how are we going to do this and we thought let's do it for real let's do it as unknowns would as we would before there was the cult and the alarm let's not get the checkbook out because 
you know, you sold a few million copies of Sonic Temple and I've sold the same on the alarm side. Let's let's root this in reality. So let's do what the project can generate. So we it was a case of beg, steal and borrow for the demos. Uh, you know, we borrowed a, an ADAP machine of somebody and we started trying to learn how to use it and put it together. And, 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 and it was definitely learning as we go with, with asking a few friends how to how much tape level we should send the guitar to and how much vocal. And, um, and we actually ended up working uh, we, through a process. We found a friend up in um, called Chris. Uh, he lives in Moilver, just above Abergelly. Uh, not far from where I'm a celebrity is being filmed right now, <laughs> uh, uh, just north of Greer or south of Greer Castle, really. And um, it, it's uh, the Chris was quite a character. He was a real jazz, jazz type of guy. He lived off the grid. He had this sort of barn that that you could go and make music, uh, and and it was um, a very hippie, like almost commune. Um, again, like I say, he's totally off the grid. But there was a sort of something about it that made us made, certainly made Billy feel like he was in L.A. It was the summer of 97 going into 98. And uh, and we just felt at home there straight away. The barn was covered with all sorts of carpets and and um, stuff to deaden it down. And, and we just started writing the songs in there and some of it times we could come and sit on his deck chris had this makeshift deck and he'd always be playing jazz music on his record player he was a vinyl freak even then and uh and, and we'd, we'd just turn his, his jazz off and we'd sit on on these deck chairs with a couple of guitars and out came the songs and then we'd go back into the barn and we started putting some demos together with a rough drum machine and then it was like right well what what is this band going to be who's how's it going to be constituted and and Billy said, well, look, I've been, I could suggest a bass player. I've been working with Craig Adams from the Sisters of Mercy who joined the last Cult album, and he's great. So, let, And I thought, well, I know Craig because I knew him in the mission from back in the early days and thought, yeah, he was always a great guy. So, uh, uh, And we said, who's going to play drums? And I said, well, I've just done a tour with the Saw Doctors in 1993 and, and, and some dates in 94, and I knew them really well. In fact, I played them in New York in 96. And uh, their drummer, Johnny Donnelly, was amazing. And I said, why don't I ask him to come over and play? So next minute, we found ourselves at Real Railway Station picking up Craig, who'd come over from Leeds, and Johnny had come over from Galway in Ireland. Um, and we all stayed at my house. It was like, you know, that it was real, enough rooms to put everybody up. And uh, we had some fantastic nights around the dinner table. And then we'd go to Killebrin, the farmhouse above Mulver, and shape the music, and we'd jam it out. Uh, uh, as a band and then we'd start we just had one microphone over the drum kit and then we'd put some uh, we'd get a backing track down of the, the of us all playing and billy was at, that, at the time billy was really keen for me to play electric guitar as well and um and i developed a, a way of playing the tambourine instead of playing the guitar with a pick i played it with a tambourine so it would, you'd get that sort of cult like 16 beat across the the strumming pattern and had hit the strings it broke a lot of strings but it was very effective yeah sounds brilliant <laughs> and uh and all of a sudden we started to develop a, a sound that, that that was had a lot of excitement to it and and the song we're going to play at the end of the show under the sun was one of the first songs we demoed um you know and i got the, the chorus was, was a little simpler than it 
it sounds on the demo it was just under the sun is where i want to be and then when i sang it i sang it wrong and forgot to come off the note and the sun is where i want to be and all of a sudden it was just like a bolt of electricity through us all we thought, that's it this is the sound we've been looking at looking for and and that was really when color sound was was formed and i think the name of the band really came because we wear the sum of two very distinct bands you know who had who had a lot of personality in both bands and uh, and so i felt like i was providing the color to billy's sound and he had the color sound foot pedals going which were and we decided to you know abbreviate it from the american spelling like it is on known on foot pedals into the uk spelling and, and then off we went there was there was a, a small band out of australia that had the color sound in the way that the, the music pedals were spelt but they were defunct at the time but but we thought well we can go ahead with this uh, spelling of the name and and we did so and 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 then it was a case of how we're going to take this from demos to the road and that was the the next bit of a challenge and uh, and again we we decided not to um try and play a gig as you know mike peters of the alarm billy duffy the cult we tried not to trade on that too much you know obviously people would know us straight away but we we did things like we did a residency at the barfly in london you know when the word got out it what was happening it was absolutely rammed to the roof and you couldn't move but it, it created a real excitement about the band that was uh, really palpable not just to us as musicians but to the fans as well it feel, it's it's an amazing story mike and to the way that you seem to have taken it back to the basics taken it back a step because it could have been potentially quite a loaded situation for two pretty well you know very well-known musicians you know what are they going to bring what are they going to bring to the party what's what's the the new sound going to be but it sounds like that taking it back to basics really gave you uh, an advantage of bringing it all together yeah it did we felt there was a liberated in some ways because we, we we didn't have to make music that was bound by the history of of that we created in that previous 10 years or so before we got together and um and, and and so we could respond a little bit more easily a little bit more anonymously to the to the music that was around us so and we we both felt that we could make something very contemporary the early sound of color sound was a little bit like the foo fighters in a way um and uh, uh, and that's that's how people saw us a little bit early on you know we were almost probably too good for ourselves if i can be so bold as to say that because as soon as it started happening for the band it, we, we played a few shows and this massive buzz started uh, based on the demo that you'll hear later in the show and some other track demos that we did um we had an opportunity through Billy to go and work with Bob Rock in in Hawaii, and then um, we we again we we used that as an opportunity to to galvanise ourselves into action. So we thought, okay, we've got this end game. How are we going to get there? So we better put a gig on and try to raise some funds to pay for the flights, and rather than just again put play out of our own pocket. And that's what we did. You know, just played a few shows. We went to Galway. Uh, we played the, as I say, we did the residency at the Barfly. Uh, we played in Leeds and Manchester and a few other gigs and 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 this real it was very underground but there was a real buzz starting and then we we managed to get um a gig in New York on the way to go and play at South by Southwest in Texas when, when that was a fairly unknown music festival at the time 
and I played it the year before and I said to Billy, if we finally get the way to get there, then it, it, you know, it'd be a great place to showcase what we're doing. And so we, we did get to go to South by Southwest and we, we, we got a gig at the Viper Room in LA. And, and again, the, the buzz was started to go off the scale and, and all the gigs were absolutely packed to the roof. And then we went and did some more demos with Bob Rock uh, in Hawaii at his plantation studio. And that, they came out amazingly good as well. And um, we kept thinking, well, this is going to really take off. And we, and we, we came back to London uh, to play and we played a big show at the LA2 underneath the Astoria and again it was one of those gigs pre-COVID obviously it was absolutely you couldn't move in there it was so intense and there was two members of the audience who changed the course of the band there that night one of them was Eddie McDonald from The Alarm and the other was Ian Asprey from The Cult and they saw that gig and the next day, the phones were ringing. Hey, Billy. Hey, Mike. Let's do the alarm. Let's do the cult. Let's get back together again. And, uh, and that—that's sort of what happened, really. And 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 luckily for Color Sound at that time, we managed to uh, step up the demos. Uh, we did a session again in, in another farmhouse in Moylver in Abergelly, um, and we did a, a set of production demos that we were using as really to fine tune our parts and lyrics and, and and solos that we were then going to take to america to work with with bob rock on a finish doing a finished color sound album with um joe barese as the engineer but as i say the this one gig in liverpool sort of almost put pay to the proper album because um the cult got offered at a reunion to play at woodstock and 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 then um, a year later, in 1999, by then, we, the alarm, we went back out on the road with Big Country and and, and we were off at the races again. <laughs> uh, but sadly, Colour Sound was was the, um, I wouldn't say the loser in all that, but it, because we actually created something out of nothing with Colour Sound, which is, will always be there and is still present to this very day. So um it was but it, it did bring our original bands but billy and i always used to say when we were writing the songs for color sound let's not be anything other than who we are you know if mike peters sings to a billy duffy riff that's color sound if billy duffy plays a riff to a mike peters lyric that's color sound it's not the alarm and it's not the cult and that's how we defined our relationship musically and and, and we stayed in within the realm of what who we were when, when you're the alarm and when you're the cult you, you have to keep pushing but you can't repeat yourself you have to keep moving on with color sound it was like hey billy why don't you play another riff like she sells sanctuary yeah of course you know the cult, the cult can't do that but well here was the space for maybe billy to play something that was just as good but it would have maybe possibly sounded re repetitive with ian asprey but or, or it would have been repetitive for me to do a song with the alarm with the, with Dave Sharp as a guitarist, but with Billy Duffy, it brought a whole other dimension to it, which elevates it into another sphere. So it was all kinds of positives, and uh, and as I say, you know, we've just reconvened as Color Sound to make a new album uh, that will come out in the new year as well, which is we're very excited about. It it's it was when we got back together. Well, we we never really split apart, Billy and I always kept our relationship billy 
played in the Dead Men Walking. He came on Love, Hope, Strength tracks with us. Um, he's played on uh, two more Alarm albums since then and played guitar and added his parts to uh, the last two Alarm albums. It's been two of our most successful re records ever. Our last record, Sigma, he plays on the opening song, Blood Red Viral Black, that kicks it off. And that's our first ever number one UK rock album that we've ever had. So not bad after 38 years of trying. Wow, that's amazing. We, I want to go on. To, we, we, I think we've got some questions and some alarm-based questions, but you said something when you were just speaking then that I wanted to just touch on, which was going to Hawaii to make demos with Bob, Bob Rock because the process of recording, writing and sort of going in and recording some demos in my head is... Um, you know, flea bitten studios, and you know, yeah. <laughs> not not Hawaii with Bob Rock. No, Bob Rock. <laughs> it's as glamorous as it is. It was, but uh, Bob Rock had produced Sonic Temple for the Cult, obviously, mm. and they had a great relationship. And they, they've done other albums since, and and um, it, it 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 was it wasn't that expensive to uh, take an LA flight and add it on to Hawaii. And, um, and and Bob Rock was throwing the studio time in for free. But sadly, when we arrived there, he'd been doing an album for an artist called Tal Backman uh, that produced a big American hit record. But um, so but that was overrunning. So we, we all we got to work in was Bob's garage, which is not far <laughs> away from what you imagine. <laughs> um, and we used the time to we just wrote four more songs and, and we came out with four brand new songs that we, we spent one day quickly recording. So we didn't actually do the sort of a uh, couple of master recordings that we were hoping to do, but we just came up with some more material. And the idea was to go ahead and make an album in the in the future. We did get to put an album out in 99 color sound but it was really just the demos um produced to a higher level than the one you're going to play on the show tonight which is our first ever demo um these second phase demos were, were production demos that they, they were really good uh but they weren't what we thought we were going to do which was go into a real studio with a big producer and make it sound you know massive which it, which um is again i think that's part of what keeps us driving us back to color sound because it's a, it's a fire that's never gone out for either of us it's always been there in the background and we, um, i think we both realized that um if we'd stayed in color sound that bit longer that might have been the band we were in today you know it had the potential to possibly eclipse what we've both done in our original bands but Billy was so synonymous with the cult as I'm synonymous with the alarm. It's hard to imagine that potential future happening. Is there any regret attached to that at all, Mike, that you, that you didn't go down that pathway? No, because we, I always used to say, Billy, on our walks, that you'll always be Billy Duffy, the cult. You'll never be anything else for the rest of your life. And I'll never be anything else than Mike Peters. And often I'd be on the summit of Snowden and some hill walker walk past and they go, hey, 68 guns, the arm. You don't think that's who I am. <laughs> Even whether I'm, when I'm not in it or whether I am in it, that's who you are. And it's hard to escape those first impressions. And um, and we, I thought we're always going to have our relationship. Billy's always going to come on stage. He'd come and plays at gatherings. Um, and, and we always knew we'd, we'd, we'd get back to make a proper record again at some point in the future, in which we've just done this last you know, in lockdown, we, we, we were actually going to start the album just before the lockdown kicked in. And um, we it started with Billy's bit like it, it did at the beginning. He sent me a dim riff, fire an email and said, what do you think of this? Out of the blue. And I sent it straight back to him, recorded, played it back on my phone and recorded a vocal into my computer and sent it straight back to him. I said, it's that good. Let's do it. And he's like, right, let's make an album. And 
we went to um Abad uh Pontlovny in the other side of Canalvon uh just before the winter came in last year um we were going to write a couple of songs and re-record the best color sound songs from the original era that had never been recorded properly but when we got there the fire started and the songs came out and we, we left after a weekend we had a whole album so we decided to make a brand new album of, of all originals and uh i so say we couldn't get into the studio on the lockdown but we did as soon as lockdown ended the very next day and i was allowed out of wales we were at the chapel studios in lincoln recording and we've made a, a an album we're really excited about releasing in 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 2021 i i think we want to sort of take you take you back in time mike and when was the when was the very first time that you went into a into a recording studio i was in a band called 17 at the time we were a three piece and we went to smile studios in um in in manchester and uh and we cut a song called french girls and bank holiday weekend and bank holiday weekend went on to become our first single as 17 which we re-recorded that in a, in a place called village way in rainers lane in london in 1978 uh, but yeah they're going in the studio in 19 uh in 1978 as i say it was quite a daunting prospect so you hadn't done anything pr prior to that yeah so we, we recorded these songs as a demo in smile studios and then we used that to shop around and try and get a record deal and we ended up doing some demos at a place called Wallasey sound recording studios in um, on on the Wirral that was we thought that sounds amazing you know but it was actually just a recording studio in somebody's house but um those demos became an actual album called that was released in japan called a flashing blur a stripped down excitement which was a description the melody maker gave to 17 in his first ever review and uh, so and demos as as we've come over the years have become really valuable because they're, they're the backbone of all the reissues and the detailing of how records are constructed you know and you can see that in all the beatles reissues their demos which were all done in high studios are, are amazing you know and you can see how songs take shape and which form they can go into so um i think we, we we've always taken great care of our, our demos and even from the from the alarm we were of an era where it was very important to us to have really great b-sides and extra tracks so we always saw every every time we went into a studio as an opportunity to make a master recording because in 1978 79 when i first went into a studio a demo studio felt like you know abbey road or somewhere they were all big places the, the, there wasn't really the equipment around there to make a sort of demo out of a shoebox it all had to have a big mixing desk and a two-inch tape machine everything that was recording technology in in the, the 70s and with the alarm we, we recorded um in 1983 84 and that's the first time i saw a computerized mixing desk when we we came to do abbey road and it was like a click track and ooh, and a computer and all this kind of stuff you know instead of a metronome and, and and just a tape machine it all started to change a little bit around that time the early 80s but luckily i had a good two or three years recording when it was just you had to be so well rehearsed and practiced to get into the studio because you had one take to do it all you know and a few overdubs but there was no um you know no cut and paste like you have now <laughs> i do mistakes on your wikipedia page it mentions that following uh, your move to london you started recording demos for various labels but with little success 
And I find that th- kind of thing really interesting because it kind of glosses over a period of time. You were just talking about the, the excitement and about going into a studio to record. And it kind of glosses over that um, time when as a band getting in the studio and, and recording for labels, hoping to get signed is massively important. And how so how was that time for you in the band and how did you approach those recordings? We, we did our first recording in Manchester at Pluto Studios and, and that was Unsafe Building and Up for Murder and, then, and they, they came out great and we moved to London and we had a great engineer making the record with us. We discovered it because The Clash had recorded there and, and so that was the nearest studio. We thought it had some credentials and, and I say the house engineer, Phil, was brilliant. And, um, and But when we got to London, we, we were... We were still a band that was in the state of flux really we weren't quite we didn't really know we were we didn't know who we were we were we'd start the gig with three acoustic guitars and a drum kit and end it with a, as a full electric band and and different people would step up to the microphone sing different songs and so when when labels came to see us some people thought oh he's great and some thought he's great and or what's their sound and, and when we started recording we we had this naive idea that if we just mic'd up the bass drum really loud, it would pick up the bass tones, and we wouldn't need a bass player. And it was, a, and we sounded a bit like the White Stripes before the White Stripes came along. And uh, and at that time, no one really understood it, and neither did we. So we got we. And at the time, there were a lot of A and R men running round gigs, not unlike today. And they would send you in one direction, and some said, "Well, if they change that, I might be interested." And and your management kind of tweak you know the, the way you sound and it was it was just we were trying to find a way in a in a in a mass of all of a sudden we were in london and we had masses of opinions around us whereas in north wales it was lovers or haters this is it you know you're either with us or against us but in london you had all kinds of opinions to contend with and people got on different nights and come back in with different ideas because they'd met other people and so it was getting used to that and so when we were doing the demos we were a little bit disappointed every time because we didn't have a bass player so there was something always hollow sounding about those early demos and then we did a sort of important gig where we played with the undertones and dave played bass and eddie played guitar and i just sang and it was great an amazing gig but dave said i don't want to play guitar i want to play guitar i mean and so eddie magnanimously so because eddie was the creative guitarist but dave was the best player so Eddie said, look, I'll play bass and you play guitar. And then that is how the band came really set up. And then when we did our next demos for EMI, Eddie was playing bass, Dave was playing guitar and I was playing acoustic and singing. And all of a sudden it came, it came right and we were, we were on our way then. Was it, was it obvious to you that when it hit that point that it was working as you wanted it to be? Yeah, because it was always working at the gigs. It was always, um, the gigs were amazing. We hit a little bit of a low point in, 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 the, in the middle of 1982, just when we were trying to find our feet, really. Um, there, there'd been an initial buzz on the band um, with the bigger labels, but it never materialised because the recordings weren't quite there that we did. You know, we did demos for Polygram and we did demos for Island and just something missing and uh, and then when when we did a demo for emi finally it really came together and they wanted to sign us but only do singles and we thought we don't want to do hmm. a single deal we want to make an album you know and so we, we actually turned emi down and then and then we got uh the, we got signed to irs records it was miles coton's label and they signed us and they agreed to make an album well singles and then an album and then next minute we were off on tour with you too so it all 
took off then. then then our first two singles were put together as an ep we were an unknown band in america playing on big stages and mm. uh, which had never happened really most british bands go to america with a lot of hype and success behind them in the home country we were a rarity and so our first ever television appearance was in america our first reviews proper were in america and, and it was from america that we flew back to do top of the pops in 1983 and and the we got introduced by simon bates said this band were on the road in america two days ago now they're here in top of the pops playing the new songs with the eight guns and and we flew straight back from the studio to carry on the american tour and when we got home two weeks later i was doing my first interviews with the british press and they said you don't you don't sound american i said well i'm not i'm from real you know and they said and it was only when my dad played me the video of, of our performance a few weeks later that i realized that why they thought we were american because we've been introduced as or being pretty much an american band i love the idea of your dad sat with his vhs waiting, waiting for you to come on and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He bought it especially. <laughs> Did he? Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, There's a couple of questions that will, will round us off nicely. The the first one is about the making of the 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 um, demo for 45 RPM for the Poppy Fields project. Because I mean that's such a unique. Um, and people can go away and research the whole story, but the, but I know that there's a story attached to to the actual putting the the demo together for that. Yeah, well, with with 45 RPM, we were. I've been, we were reintroducing the alarm post color sound and um and the band had reconstituted itself to play its greatest songs from the 80s and as soon as that started happening everyone's going well, when, when we got to get a new album so i started to put this the new songs i thought were going to make an alarm album i was doing it at kimmel hall in st george and doing the the recordings and they weren't demos there. i was going straight to record really uh, but I had invested in all the equipment to be able to do it ourselves. So we didn't have to go to a recording studio. We could record in remote locations. So they were sort of demos slash masters. Um, but as soon as we started recording, I thought 10 songs isn't enough to convey what I've just felt about this band for the last 10 years. So it be it became a 54-song project with with an album a month being recorded and released pretty instantly and it became it was called the inner poppy fields collection and uh, it became this giant project and as soon as i realized i had this massive canvas and committed to releasing an album a month i thought where are the songs going to come from and and so we had to start digging pretty deep into the catalog and uh, and i found the song with a big riff in it and i thought this sounds like something i'd have written when i was in the toilets or 17 in 1977 and so i um I just played it to the to the band at the end of the day, and and when we'd come across a song, and it was that we'd done nineteen new songs, and we were getting doing song number twenty and playing it, and the lad said to me, "You know what, Mike? We've done nineteen songs, and they're all knocked down, dead alarm songs. This one doesn't quite hit the spot." And I was like, "Oh, I was a bit disappointed." You know, I thought, oh, I thought, I thought it's going to be a good one, but you know, you can't tell yourself till people give you a reaction. So I said, okay. So I thought, well, what about this one? I wasn't wasn't going to play you this one. I thought it sounds like I'm 17, you know, and it, it, play it. And I played the 45 RPM song, and I went, that is it. And we and we yeah. cut it there and then, and it and it, we went for a drink afterwards, and we, and the guys were saying, you know, if that was a young band right now, Mike, that'd be a smash. It sounds like Green Day and Bad Religion, and you know, it, all in one big rap, rap rock song, and uh, and and so that that was. 
it's that's where the thought process came to mind and uh i sent it to a few friends said what do you think of this and they they all said to me is that a band you're managing so we uh, took it to london and, and played it to a record player called dylan white and said to him this is the new alarm record and he went no you know no one's you know it's, everyone's moved on now it's oasis and primal scream and all this sort of stuff now you know no disrespect but you know you're probably more radio two than radio one now so i can't really do a lot for you so he didn't even want to hear the song and uh and so we, we got chatting because we knew him and we said to him look we are managing a band in wales that they're called the poppy fields and he goes what oh. they're only 18 let me hear that then he said so i'll put him <laughs> i get on the radio like that <laughs> that's the alarm record so off off we went so we went he said let give me a week to try that out on a few unsuspecting djs and next minute he phoned me up a week later and said the enemy are going to make it record the week it's going on the playlist on radio on steve Lamar loves it and uh and i said what did they say when you told them it was the alarm and he said well they went so mad for the record i didn't have the guts to tell them it was the alarm <laughs> so, so we carried it all through as the poppy fields and the, the story then is it became a massive hit and we revealed on top of the pops that the poppy fields were the alarm in disguise and and then it just it blew up in our faces really it went it became this massive story and we ended up on cbs news with dan rather it went all around the world to new zealand and india that was my phone nearly melted with interviews for a week and it was incredible but the irony of it is as soon as a uh, radio one found out that the poppy feels really the alarm we were a 40 year old band they dropped it like a hot potato which just tells you everything really so so mike you've remained really prolific throughout your career what's the process of creating new music like now and how connected does that feel to the mike peters at the beginning of your music career back in back in 77 in those early days well, well, I still feel really connected to who I was when I started out. You know, I've never let projects run away with themselves or be over over budgeted, and uh, so I've I've just always tried to keep them in the real world. So, and and back in the day, it was recording songs by remembering them. That's the only way I could do it. In 1977, 78, I used to say to myself, "Well, if I can't remember this song, then no one else is going to be able to remember it." So that is the way it's that was my recording method then in the 80s and i had more albums to make i realized i had albums to make and i needed to write more songs to fuel the band needs i started getting a walkman and writing lyrics on you know hotel paper and started recording them and um, and then now it all goes into the phone and 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 it's iphone recordings and i read speak a lot of my lyrics so it's faster the creative process is faster you know you used to have to wait i used to have to phone home in the 80s i'd be out running and get a great lyric and I, i'd phone home from a pay phone and leave the lyrics on the answer phone and things like that but now i just read them all into the phone it's a lot more immediate and also now because of the internet you can communicate one-on-one -on -one with your fans whereas you never could with the, the 80s it was always through a third party who put a twist on the story and it if you're making a solo record or making a record for a musical or a play or a soundtrack people see it as being the end of the band and that and i think because that everything had to be off the scale but now because you can communicate one-on-one -on -one, you can say okay i'm just going to do this project and it's it's a you know it's a side project it's not the next alarm album but it's still got some validity and you know people you can it takes a lot of the pressure out so you can be a lot more inventive a lot more creative and work across a lot of spectrums of music that you wouldn't normally be able to do so you can definitely step outside the alarm a lot more than i could in the 80s which is 
And that's probably what drove the band apart in the 80s. We felt trapped in the alarm, all of us, not just me, but everyone. Whereas now I can step outside the alarm, be part of Colour Sound, or, or I can go off and do a, a soundtrack on my own for, for another project altogether. And, and it doesn't get confusing because we have a voice to the fans without it being edited through journalist, uh, journalistic approaches that maybe aren't as sympathetic as we want them to be. So I'm in a great space. Mark, thanks so much for giving us your time to come on the podcast. We really, really appreciate it. Um, can we can we just close out with you introducing the song that people are going to hear now? Yes. Yeah. Hello, everybody. This is a song from a padded envelope marked by a band called Colour Sound, and it is the song called Under the Sun. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks, Mike.
Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Ben Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>